Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of this relatively new, but a couple of episodes old now, podcast, The Good Oil. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the real stuff, the important stuff. And that's what we're going to try and do with this podcast. We're going to bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, with executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest, I'm going to embarrass him up front and say, I think he is the most underrated CEO on the ASX. I said that before, so this isn't new. He is, of course, Mark Fitzgibbon, and he's the boss of health insurer NIB. Mark, thanks for joining me on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. Like, my first um, encounter with The Good Oil was on the racetrack, I think. <laughs> Did you win? Oh, no, it was just... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you for thank you for joining me. Really appreciate your time. I will disclose very quickly up front. I do own NIB shares. Unfortunately, too belatedly, I haven't I haven't uh, enjoyed the the value you've created for other shareholders. But I hope we will still from here. Um, so I will put that on the record, mate. Um, let's let's start with uh, this is the the sixty four dollar question. Maybe it's the question of the moment. But you run a health insurance business. Uh, we are still living through, hopefully getting towards the end of the pandemic phase, at least of COVID. You talk about being a healthcare company rather than a, a sickness company. I think that's been a criticism that's been levelled at the health system in general. We we you know we don't tend to do anything there near enough around preventative health. We don't tend to uh, you know we focus on the illness. We focus on the point at which there is intervention needed, rather than everything leading up to that point. Um, that being said, you guys as a health insurance business, generally speaking, are at, the, at that pointy end. How does NIB go from, why does it go from a health insurance business to a health care business? The, the, the threat of disease is also providing tremendous impetus to the kind of investment that is being made in data science and this ability to, to predict the risk of disease at an individual and population level and uh, intervene in a way which actually prevents disease or better manages and controls the disease. So the, the future of healthcare, and we, today we consider ourselves a, health, a healthcare company as much as we do a health insurance company. And so it's playing into a, a strategy we always, already have in place about a healthcare system, which is about your health, not just your sickness. Whoever is um, able to solve the problem of keeping you healthy in the first place, rather than just being there for you once you're sick, wins. Um, well, we win commercially and society as a whole wins in terms of, you know, it being uh, healthier. And look, this is um, the, the, the shift in healthcare systems away from sickness to prevention has purely been driven by technology as it has across uh, you know, history in so many uh, industries. The combination of our ability to um, generate and connect data, uh, our ability to analyse that, that data is, you know, is is emerging at an incredible rate. So, you know, we can say uh, increasingly the day that Scott, if he has characteristics physiologically, bio, uh, biologically, uh, socially, uh, genetically, et cetera, et cetera, we know from algorithms written from literally millions and millions of records that he's at specific risk of disease one, two, three, four, five. And if so, we know from algorithms, again, written by machines, that best way to prevent that disease or manage that disease or more precisely treat that disease is X, Y, and C. So uh, this is the future, but like with any of these, um, with any, like with any of this zeitgeist, it's 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 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration. And certainly as a company, we're 
we're uh, investing a lot of effort and resource in developing the kind of technologies uh, required. It occurs to me that if I'm looking from your statement from the outside, I'm thinking, okay, well, either the health insurance is getting more expensive, so they need to fix it, or health insurance is an opportunity, so they can take advantage of it, or health insurance will die because people will take advantage of this stuff, so they need to change businesses really quickly, or some combination of those through something else entirely. Strategically at NOB, what's what's the drive there? Is it is it is it profit opportunity over somewhere else? Is it the fact that health insurance itself might be uh, you know, challenged by the fact that fewer people need it. I mean, if you think about Tesla and cars, right? If you don't need servicing, if the things probably don't crash or break down very often because they have all these things, the motor insurance business is fundamentally challenged by autonomous vehicles, right? It's impossible, as you say, that your granddaughter not only says, did you go to the doctor, but, you know, what was this insurance, health, driving your motor insurance thing that you had to have before we could rely on cars to keep themselves out of accidents? Well, what's the driving motivation for NIB from that perspective? Well, our motivation for this, Look, I should say our economic engine is still health insurance and it will be for years and years to come. And what this kind of um, um, pivot is doing, gee, we use that term a lot, don't we, these days? <laughs> what this pivot is doing is, is allowing us to go to the marketplace. Sure, it's helping us manage underlying risk and therefore the loss ratio, and hope, which hopefully keeps premiums all the more uh, affordable for people. But what we're trying to mostly do is improve the value proposition for people, particularly younger people. You know, people say, like people say health insurance is overrated. Well, it's overrated until you actually need it, like any form of insurance. But we want to say, and I've got four millennial kids, in the, more and more in the future, we want to say, look, we get that you don't, you're young and healthy, you don't necessarily see the need for health insurance, you have Medicare. But as a member of NIB, you'll, you'll get coverage, but... What we'll provide you with is an electronic health record, one that's usable and works, uh, an individual uh, risk profile based upon the data science, a very individual good health management plan based upon uh, the data science, which you and your doctor can reliably and precisely use to better understand your health risk and manage that risk. In fact, we'll launch next year an NIB membership without without insurance. So you we call it a green pass. So you'll you'll buy a green pass, which gives you access to all the technology and insight and connectivity with our providers, but not with the indemnity. And you know the, the goal is like any freemium style offering. The goal is that in time we'll develop our relationship with you, and when and if a time comes where you think you need health insurance, you can add you can drop that in the shopping trolley as well. So. What we're doing here is, yeah, it's certainly about better controlling risk, uh, underlying health risk, but it's as much about the value proposition and even something which transcends that, Scott, you know, call me old-fashioned, but if we get this right and we can help lead the way, we can actually, our major contribution, uh, you know, all the talk about ESG these days, like we only produced about 10,000 tonnes in in carbon and we'll, you know, we're – We've got our heads down to reduce that by 65% over the course of the next five years. But easily the major contribution we can make to making the world a better place is to improve population health, particularly those communities which uh, have egregious gaps in health outcomes, as so many Indigenous communities do, for example. NIB is interesting, but again, like I'm a shareholder, as I said, I'm a, I'm a fan of what you're doing. I'm a fan of the business. I think the shares are attractively priced. That's That's one part of it. Um, you, you've had a younger demographic for a long time. I, I, I assume that's a deliberate strategy or remains a deliberate strategy. And 
the cynic would look at what NOB is doing and say, well, you're doing all these cool, woke things to appeal to the millennials, as you, as you mentioned before. On the other hand, I know that from talking to you before and, and knowing, you know, following the business and, and you for a little bit of time, that it's not just lip service and it's not craven, mercenary, uh, you, you know, woke covering, but it's but it's genuine. And I'm just looking at your your media releases now. Literally, the, the homepage of your your media section on, on the NOB website is um, seventy seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to Lifeline, fifty percent of your sponsorship going to women's sport, or of your sport sponsorship going to women's sport. Um, you've got life at NOB redefined to achieve greater work flexibility, etc., etc., etc. It it you know it's hard to see anything other than a genuine desire to improve things. And I, I guess I'm curious, you mentioned ESG, and that's such a hot topic right now and people are looking for ethical investments. Um, how do you how do you think about your role as steward of the company, but then the wider social mission of NIB and, and of, of businesses in general? Well, I think a lot about it and I'm, I'm pleased that you that's the way you perceive us to be because it is very authentic, which is not to say we aren't very focused on the commercial objectives of the business, uh, you know, to be efficient managers of capital and to ensure that our shareholders um, get a decent return on that invested uh, capital. You know, many of our shareholders are mum and dad retail investors who got shares at the time of um, of the demutualisation. De- 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 so, look, personally and the company, we've really bought into this notion that, you know, we're here for a purpose, that profits hopefully follow us doing well in fulfilling our, our purpose. You know, we're a big believer in this shift away from just a single focus on shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, capitalism. you know, the range of other stakeholders in, in our performance uh, as a business. Um, and it's actually, it's actually more fun that way. You know, if you're looking to motivate people, you know, talking about how we're hopefully making a contribution to society and, and the communities in all sorts of ways, through providing with health protection and in this future of, of helping them and their doctors uh, predict risk through to the various charitable uh, pursuits that you mentioned. So, um, yeah, well, I, I think there's a time, Scott, uh, not that far away where we stop talking about ESG, not because our environmental, social and governance responsibilities aren't important, but simply because it's it's baked in, you know. It's it's taken for granted that as as, as a company we're pursuing uh, our our social and environmental leadership um, responsibilities as much as we're pursuing the need to generate a return on invested capital. I will say the Motley Fool is a big fan, and our co-founder David Gardner is on the board of Conscious Capitalism in the US, and similar similar kind of approach that you can do well and do good. It's not it's not an either or conversation. You can actually have both components. Yeah, and, and what a really interesting thing that I've, I've noticed too, and look, this is not an original thought, but, you know, it doesn't count if it doesn't get counted. And our ability in this digital digital age to measure progress we're making on things like greenhouse emissions, on things like improving the health of populations we, uh, we serve in terms of the lifting of, um, uh, you know, in terms of diversity, inclusion and greater participation by people with disabilities or Indigenous um, people. As we become better at measuring these things with some accuracy to the point where, you know, an independent auditor, third party can sign off of them, that's going to accelerate the effort as, as well. It's hard to, hard to play a game footy without a scoreboard. 
I want to get onto the, the core business of NIB, but before I do, because we're talking about some of the softer stuff, um, or so-called soft skillings, right? I, I think that's probably under, underselling it, but that's what they call it these days. Um, let's go back to you, if you don't mind. You've, you've been at NIB now for 19 years, 20 years next year. And I'm curious, I, I guess your journey, you joined NIB as CEO in 2002, demutualized the business in 2007. It's got to have been a, a heck of a journey. I don't know if you can, you know, I'm sure you can vividly remember, but, you know, thinking back to the NIB of 2002 and the NIB of today, how would you characterise that journey, that the changes that the business has been on, the the way the operations have changed, the business's focus has changed, or is it exactly the same and just doing doing more and doing better? Well, I, if I had to pick one word, it would be it's been an adventure, um, as you mentioned. You know, NIB, when I arrived there all those years ago, and I had no idea I'd stay as long as I had, but we have been through so many chapters uh, in our history since then. Um, but it was actually very, had been a very successful, well, was a very successful business. It had been around for, you know, 50 years, uh, protecting um, a lot of people in the Newcastle-Hunter area. It had its genesis as a, as a health fund for BHP workers deep in the bowels of um, BHP, the steelmaker. So, um, but look, I saw an opportunity uh, to grow. Uh, the, we did focus very um, determinedly on that youth market uh, in the early years and um, sort of positioned our, ourselves in the marketplace or advertising, sports sponsorships, product design. For example, we pioneered this idea of allowing people, particularly younger people, to carve out cover they thought they didn't need. Some accused us of selling fake health insurance. My, uh, my rejoinder was, no, we're giving um, people choice. And if people want to carve out cover and rely on Medicare for the other risks, that's, that's fine. And, of course, everyone today produces different levels of cover. We were early investors in um, you know, digital um, marketing and, and, and sales. And the reason we went after younger people was the level of penetration in the 40s market was low and we thought the right marketing, product design, uh, um, service, we could do well. We did very well. Now, having said all of that, you, you know, serendipity is just so important to businesses. Even before we more deliberately started going after younger people, we called it Virgin Green, NIB was already, had, was already developing this, well, had already grown in that under-40s market quite, um, quite well. So a little bit of serendipity, but then that serendipity gave birth to a much more uh, defined strategy. Chasing young people is either crazy or crazy brave or something. You, you mentioned the lack of penetration. One business manager says, we're not going there. No one under 40 buys health insurance. The other guy says, we're going there. Nobody under 40 buys health insurance yet. And that's kind of the difference. I, I wonder, did it feel like a big gamble? Did it feel risky? Did it feel like you needed to do it? Was it the only way to differentiate it? Was it the most attractive idea? Or was it just, as you say, a, a series of kind of, we'll try this, see if it works. If it keeps working, we'll do more of it. How, I can imagine, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, in a different universe, some some KPMG or, or university case study of NIB that failed by going after the health market for young people where obviously no one was ever going to sell insurance and, and that was the end of the business. Um, how, how did that feel as you're going through that process? Because a lot of people, entrepreneurs and, and business executives listening to this are saying, well, where do I try and focus? Do I, do I go after virgin territory or do I stay where I know I can make a sale? Well, look, it's something uh, I, we were always comfortable with because we had this philosophy in the business about, you know, the status quo is death. And unless you're trying new things, you eventually die. Um, we might come back to that. But look, I've got a terrible admission to make. Um, 
what enabled us. I think in 2003, the industry as a whole collectively spent about $30 million a year on marketing and acquisition. And it reflected the fact that the industry had been rescued by the Howard government. Everyone had their patch. Everyone was comfortable. When we started aggressively advertising in the mid noughties I even had some CEOs call me wondering what the hell I was doing advertising in their patch. Oh, wow. Okay. So right. in, in about 2005, Scott, we spent $30 million on our own, virtually double the total spend. Now, that was, um, that was a big investment uh, at the time and, and certainly rel- uh, relative uh, to our spending back then. But what gave me, why I wasn't nervous was because we were mutual. Mm. <laughs> we were swinging capital. <laughs> and if it did no good, um, nobody really cared. Uh, so, which, you know, it's a far cry from the day where we're much more accountable for those kind of investments. Although it does point to the fact that um, sometimes the accountability as a listed company is a little bit short-sighted. It occurred to me as you were mentioning that that I wonder how many listed companies now would have the guts to say, let's go and try some of those things because uh, fund managers and share prices and, and headlines can be awful masters if, uh, if things don't go as well as you hope. Well, you know, a lot of fund managers in my experience and uh, um, many of them are mates and they, they, talk, they talk about the importance of long-term value creation, but they're as interested in those half-year results as anything. Half years long term, mate. Quarterly is uh, well, the, the normal. Every finder's got a quarterly target here. I'm, I'm very fortunate at the Motley Fool we don't do that. So uh, I, can, I can laugh about it. I, I imagine on their, uh, if I was on their shoes, I'd be worried about every every three months. I can I kind of understand the, the incentive, but I also, uh, as, you, as you say, I think some of the best businesses are the likes of the Amazons where Bezos said in his first letter, hey, if, you, if you're interested in the next five years, don't, don't even come and talk to me. I'm not going to talk to you about it. And Amazon went through some tough times, but eventually that kind of proved itself. And I, I dare say, as you say, that the ability to be a mutual and do some of those things that were long-term in nature and, and were, 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 you know, they're all, everything's a bet, right? I don't mean bet in a, in a horrible gambling you know, way, but everything is a, everything's a, calculated, a calculated investment on a potential hopeful outcome. Yeah, well, look, we, we have our mutations, like we really buy the parlance of uh, biology. Um, we, we have the criteria around what we call red coin racing, you know, first of all, the, the bet has to be um, present a big enough opportunity. So we're not going to make a bet in thermal coal, for example. But anything to do with data science in healthcare, for sure. Um, it has to be um, related to our business so that we, in other words, there has to be some sort of opportunity for economies of scale or, or scale. We can use our brand or other assets in the business uh, to do well. So we won't go off and do something completely from left field. We'll always do. Um, a lot of homework before we do something uh, novel uh, and we'll never make a big bet. So it's a mutation. If it blows up, well, you know, it blows up. We're not betting the company on, on, on mutation. That bet we made back in 2005, we wouldn't do today. Like we wouldn't, tell, we wouldn't go out and double our marketing expenditure. You mentioned the Red Queen racing. It's one of the things that we've talked about before and you've mentioned before in some of your writing 
Um, I really like the the concept. And you mentioned before status quo is death. You talk about your your fascination with biology and kind of using that as a bit of a, a framework for thinking about business. I'm curious, yeah, yes, that was probably a big bet. Maybe you wouldn't do it again today. By the same token, NIB continues to take market share. You are doing something better, different, uh, more attractive than your competitors are when it comes to policyholders. Um, I think your share has gone from 9 to 9.3%, which is in, in, a, in a relatively stable market where people don't change health insurers very often, a, a really impressive feat. Let's let's talk the 2021 version of of that of that 30 million dollar spend. What are you guys doing differently or better? Do you think that, that makes and I'm not asking you to you know um, rag out your competitors, just but what, what is it, what is it that delivers NIB that continued growth where others are really struggling to even stand still? Well, I think it's constant innovation, Scott. You know, I have a strong belief the only form of long run competitive advantage is constant short term competitive advantage. So, just as we experimented in the 2000s, you know, we started. Exp- We've been experimenting the whole time. Um, and we pioneered white labelling uh, in the sector. Uh, so Count Qantas and Suncorp and the Automobile Association now as major uh, white label partners. We were early adopters of the broker channel, um, you know, the ISLEX that compared the markets of the world when most of the industry were trying to eschew that channel. We talked to you, well, look, if this is where consumers want to shop, you know, we have to, have, we have to be there. So, you know, I don't – there's been no real – space probes to Mars, there's just been experimentation and amplifying those experiments that, that do well and cutting off those um, that don't. And our latest bet, if, if you like, is, as I've already covered, is a bet we're making around um, data science and uh, an- analytics. Um, it's not a little bet, but, you know, we're a $3.5 billion company uh, these days. We can for to, you know, make the level of investment we have in in what we call our pay-at-a-partner transformation. And that's expressed itself in our um, partnership with Cigna, the large US-based global uh, healthcare company, and the, the capital we're putting into our pay-at-a-partner transformation. So, look, it's just constant, um, constant uh, innovation, adaptation to market conditions, uh, and hopefully this latest effort is more than a mutation, it's quite transformational. This, this idea that NIB membership is, is about your good health, not just your sickness. I wonder if I can talk to you about company culture. You you have, you, you speak in, in clear um, metaphor and analogy um, and you talk about we at NIB. I'm not inside the business, and and for all our listeners know, you could be taking all, all the stuff, and everyone behind your back's like bloody Fitzgibbon. He's off on one of his stories again. On the other hand, I, my my reasonably strong conviction is that actually does percolate down through the organisation and gives it some sort of common culture, purpose, direction, belief system. Not in not a faith way, but in a this is how we do things around here kind of way. And as a CEO who's been there for 19 years, I guess part of that is tenure. Part of that is I'm sure deliberate and a conscious choice to create an organisational culture and, and way of doing things that you think works. Maybe you can just talk to us a little bit about how that's come about for you, your, your management journey, if you like, over that 19 years. That management journey sounds a bit, you know, cliche, but you know what I mean. Um, how, how that's developed and how you've kind of come to a way of managing and developing a culture and nurturing that culture to be the organisation that you think an OB needs to be to be successful. Well, there's a lot to that as well, and I Scott, in, in, in business. Um, you know, it certainly starts with having a very – concise sense of, you know, why we're here as a business. Um, 
you know, I'd like to think that, you know, people, you know, what's that corny old uh, analogy about, you know, one brick layers, you know, laying the wall, but the other's building the cathedral. Constant, you know, constant discussion in business about, you know, what our purpose is and how we're seeing the world and sharing that broadly across the the, the companies um, are really important. You know, the quote Jim Collins, having the right people on the bus is, you know, just mission uh, critical. Uh, the people that you know are going to, you know, um, prosecute uh, you know, your vision uh, for, the, for the company. Um, having this sense amongst and, and putting some scientific basis to it, this sense around experimentation. Like I started life running councils, you know, reason I was able to, um, you know, move on beyond councils because I was, I suppose I was an innovator. Uh, you know, I drove a lot of innovation in local government in the councils I, I ran. And so I've always had a, a view that unless you're constantly innovating, and this is a red queen racing, this is, you know, she's running on this, she's running as fast as you can on the spot just to, just to survive it, you know. So, you know, people in our business now are encouraged think differently they're encouraged uh, uh, to innovate like you know yeah I run around the joint talking about new concepts like take the metaverse for example now 50 years from now most retailing will have probably occur in if Mark Zuckerberg and others are right probably occur in metaverse now yeah I talk openly in the business about metaverse now I'm never going to you know I'm never going to make the metaverse happen but, but what I and maybe the metaverse will fall over as a concept but what I'm trying to do is signal the people that they have license to think differently, to grab hold of these new concepts, maybe from other industries, and see how they may be made applicable uh, in our business. So that's that that culture of uh, giving people the freedom and the flexibility and the license to try new things, and uh, and and where they know they're not going to get in trouble. If things um, don't work out, provided they've probably thought through and there was no um, sins of omission. When we talk to the to the the other bits of business, what I what I've liked about NOB, those those little bits you mentioned, um, I, I've described it. You could completely correct me, and tell me I'm wrong. I can rethink my entire thesis. Is that NOB as an organisation, as you said, the core of your business is Australian Health Insurance. You call it the Australian Resident Health Insurance kind of division or operation. That's where that's where most of the business is, the most of the revenue, most of the profit, all that stuff. And it seems to me that where others have said, we're health insurers, so we'll be health insurers, so we'll do more health insurance. And I bet to some degree has gone, okay, well, we're generating some money here. The growth in the Australian business is going to be moderate and ongoing, but never going to really make a huge difference. We can actually grow faster, potentially with fewer constraints and potentially into larger markets, less competitive markets. And I'll let you describe them the way you see them. But if I think about the incoming workers and incoming students, which obviously has had a terrible last couple of years, um, the world nomads travel insurance business, unfortunately, not a great, uh, not not a great, not great timing. Obviously, no uh, no crystal ball there on COVID, unlike the rest of us who had no idea either. Um, you, you've deliberately the tower acquisition in New Zealand. It, it feels to me that, and, and I, again, I'll, I'll I'll describe it. and You can tell me where I'm wrong. The, the Australian business is something like a, a moderately growing cash cow business, so you can harvest and then find other ways to grow outside that limited-ish pool, where frankly regulations and other things limit the potential growth available. Is that is that a reasonable description, or what have I got wrong? Yeah, no, there's a, a lot to unpack there. So. Certainly when we started looking around at other business opportunities, you know, I've already touched upon the fact that, you know, we're big believers in economies and scale and scope. If you have certain assets and capabilities that lend themselves to other markets, 
terrific, and we're still doing that today. So we went looking um, to reduce our concentration risk on that core Australian residence health insurance market. That took us into New Zealand, as you mentioned, took us into uh, international workers uh, and students. It's taken us uh, uh, to China. It's taken us into uh, travel insurers. Insurance. And by and large, we've done, we've had some failures, like we had a medical travel business which fell flat in its face. Um, but by and large, we've, we've, we've done well. The, and you know, pre COVID 19, those adjacent businesses uh, accounted for almost 35% of our earnings. So we had reduced that um, concentration risk um, quite significantly and grown a, a lot of enterprise value around uh, that, that core engine. Um, COVID-19 has knocked those businesses around, particularly international students and travel insurance. But, look, it's it's temporary disruption. It's not structural disruption. You know, it's not Blockbuster or a fax machine uh, company. Both international students and uh, travel will bounce back as work, as students and travel and as students return and people start travelling again. The international workers' business has actually done very well, or well, at least we've done very well uh, during COVID. What immigration, what worker migrants have been arriving here, we've captured the lion's share of that market. So Pacific um, um, Island labour, um, seasonal uh, fruit pickers, and, and our students feed our, our workers' insurance businesses because a lot of students who stay on under 485Vs at work and, and need health insurance. So students and uh, travel will... Um, uh, recover. New Zealand's been um, ticking along uh, quite nicely. The Australian business has been done. Look, we exist to pay claims. Um, so, again, I'm not celebrating at all the fact that people have been denied effectively service, you know, dentists and, and uh, elective surgery. But what COVID-19 has meant is our, our loss ratio has plummeted. Um, we're in an accounting sense, we're provided for, it's a bit like the banks, you know, having to make provision for impairments in COVID-19. We've had to make provision for the fact that the claims that went missing, the treatment that went missing, the claims went missing, will come back at some point, and we need to provide for that. So there's a mass, there's a large provision there sitting on our balance sheet today, but, the, you know, during COVID-19, we've generated a lot of cash. We have quite understandably um, uh, looked to compensate members for what has been an effective denial of service during periods of COVID-19. We've done that in, in a number of ways. We've um, deferred premium increases uh, for six months as we did last year. We've made special rebates. We've added cover uh, for COVID-19 at no cost. Um, and I expect there'll be more to come, you know, just depending on um, you know, how circumstances um, uh, play out. The The... Uh, inference that I'm inclined to draw from this is that the Australian health insurance business is about as tapped out as it's going to be when it comes to meaningful growth in terms of, you know, making acquisitions of other insurers. You know, you'll continue to grow organically, obviously, but the growth thus far has been everywhere else but uh, in those adjacent areas. Um, I can only assume that's, again, a, a commercial reality question of we either give the money back to shareholders and stay a, a, a smaller business uh, or we go and try and find value accretive growth opportunities, acquisitions, that kind of stuff. And to the extent that's true, 
uh, you talk about adjacent businesses, obviously New Zealand is an international expansion. Um, uh, I'm not going to ask you for anything non-public information because obviously that would be inappropriate for you to tell me, Amita, here. Uh, but in terms of just what the future might be for NOB in that context, is that is that right? Is Australian growth just this kind of slow-growing cash cow that you then harvest for, for other stuff? And, and where you talk about adjacencies, what what sort of international is it? Is it, um, you know, Australia-based but, but – um, Businesses that kind of sit alongside, take advantage of those those opportunities. Well, hopefully it's just not slow lumbering uh, growth. This we we had an investor presentation uh, recently where we explained the the technology we're developing, which allows us to you know predict risk, you know, analyze who who you are, um, better connect you with the healthcare system. We think we call it. It's our P2P, pay, imagine payer to partner. We want to be your partner in your healthcare. That's 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 supporting a us differentiating ourselves in the in the Australian residents health insurance market with a superior uh, a value proposition. Hopefully, growing the market because younger people are more more attractive, and hopefully, growing our share so above system growth as we have uh, for many years. So, you know. That, that has the potential to create a lot of um, uh, enterprise value uh, for the corporation. It's supporting our better managing risk and improving our loss ratio. Now, again, that's a value that if we can capture that value, it gets fed back into the, the value proposition and our price competitiveness win at NAHA. It's fueling some other new adjacent opportunities. I mentioned the Green Pass. So if you look at Australian health insurance market, it's about a $30 billion spend. Australia spent about $35 billion out of pocket on healthcare services. So we think about, you know, how can we play in that value pool? And so things like the Green Pass, we've just um, launched our first treatment package uh, product. It's not an insurance product. Uh, it's about um, pregnancy. There's a skincare um, package uh, uh, to follow. And we've just acquired half of a new digital startup called Midnight Health, which has a range of other men and women's health products. So we want to play in that um a particular value pool. So, you know, for example, so Johnny is 24, he's fit, um, he doesn't need health insurance, but he's got rosacea or bad skin. He's interested in a, a package which gives him a free trip to the dermatologist once a year, a range of, range of skincare products, some maybe some pharmaceutical uh, support. So if we can get Johnny to interested in this package, he then goes on our Salesforce CRM and he becomes part of the um, NIB family and hopefully eventually uh, is part of our growth story in Ahai. It's causing us to look at the NDIS as, as an opportunity, another $30 billion pool. Uh, forecast to go to $50 billion by, I think, 2020, 2040. If you think about the NDIS, it... There's a layer called plan management, which plays an agency role. So we play an agency role between buyers and sellers of healthcare. So to do plan managers, managers in the new NDIS system play an agency role between buyers and sellers of disabilities uh, services. And we think with the investment we're making in personalisation, we can again it can be a source of uh, differentiation. But you know, quite apart from marketing differentiation of greater value uh, to the NDIS uh, clients in understanding. Um, their risk profile and their needs. Um, we, we're particularly interested in applying this science to helping communities 
manage uh, their population health. And there's no better example of uh, that than what we've been doing for three years now in New Zealand with the Maori tribe, Ngāti Whātua Araki. So that tribe came to us three years ago and said, look, we'd like help in improving health outcomes within our population of 5,000. And together we've done very well. We're looking to replicate that project uh, in Australia uh, very, very soon and demonstrate to the world that, look, we can be part of the solution to improving health at a population level and reducing you know, gaps in, in health outcomes. So that's a big opportunity in the business. And, um, you know, through our investment in Honeysuckle Health, there's a commercial opportunity. Well, again, there's an opportunity there to do good for people. But Honeysuckle Health is providing a broad range of um, products and services to help people better manage their health care. And, um, you know, there, there's a, there's the, the opportunity there is the, mon the monetization opportunity there is, frankly, to keep people out of hospitals. Um, and the savings that go with that by providing them with alternatives to um, hospitalisation. How far does that go? So let, let me, again, put my cynics hat on and you may choose to sidestep the question given it's political in nature or not. Um, if you're a health insurer and you've got to go to the health minister every year and say, can I please have some more money, sir? And the health minister says, no, you're already making too much money because of all these cost savings you've made. You can't get that premium increase. It strikes me as an industry where margin growth is reasonably hard to come by because any cost savings are seen by the minister of the day, and I don't mean this to be party political, just the, the reality of politics of a no health minister wants to be signing off a, an increase that gets reported in the papers the next day if you don't need the money and you're already making more. Um, how do you manage a, a Australian resident health insurance business trying to make those savings, trying to get those economies of scale, trying to get those efficiencies later to reduce prices when at the same time the minister says, well, okay, good, you can't have the increase you want. Um, I guess eventually your own pricing comes down far enough that you don't need the increase. Maybe that's part of it. But uh, it just strikes me that it's one of those – And I, I, I won't, I won't badmouth you or the industry, but, you know, the gold plating that we see in electricity generation, for example, where you get a return on your assets. So, hey, let's get more assets and get more return. The same potentially in health insurance. If they're going to give you an increase based on your increased expenses, then there's not a lot of benefit or not a lot of reason to not increase your expenses and actually a disincentive to actually take costs out. Am I, am I too cynical? Am I missing something? How does NIB manage that if your aim is to actually get people off that off that train without without the health minister saying, well, thanks very much, NIB, no increase for you? Well, in a competitive marketplace, and like there's still 35 health insurers in our marketplace, um, you know, return on capital is, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand. It's, it's, your returning capital only comes, of course, you're solving problems for society's marketplace uh, of people's, but, you know, maybe that's a bit esoteric. But people have been wringing their hands ever since we listed the business about government pricing, um, and yet it's never really been, been an issue. The, the, the government of the day generally accepts that our pricing reflects claims, inflation. All we're doing is helping people fund their burgeoning expenditure in healthcare. You know, Scott, our, across the entire OECD since World War II, we've spent the equivalent of GDP plus 2% more on healthcare every year. And two factors behind that. One is we're an ageing society generally across the OECD. The second is the wealth effect. You know, healthcare spending has high income elasticity. Why health insurance premiums have been going up uh, for some time, it just simply reflects uh, society's increased uh, appetite for healthcare uh, services, which is not to say we can't make it more efficient in terms of both technical and allocated efficiency. Uh, by that I mean, you know, 
technical efficiency is not paying more than you have to for the widget. Allocated efficiency is not spent, not buying more widget than, than you actually need. So the system has, has room for efficiency improvements for sure. We could spend all day talking about that. But health insurance premiums are going to continue to go up wherever society elects to spend more on healthcare. Now, in terms of our return, we make we only make six cents on the dollar. Now, against the capital you have to, to set aside, six cents on the dollar is look, it's a reasonable return. I, I agree. And I suppose one of the reasons we've gone from, you know, a three hundred million dollar company to a three and a half billion dollar company, I don't mean to sound like a bragging, but one of the reasons is consistently delivered that kind of return uh, for a long period. Is it excessive? You know, I, I don't think so. You know, we've seen if generally if you're making excessive returns and not, not solving problems for people, there's only one way your business is going to go and we've continued to, to, to grow, grow and prosper. Um, so yeah, but I don't, and, and, and the short term, this COVID uh, profit, this, this extraordinary profitability we're making through COVID-19, that will adjust. Uh, it will adjust by us um, compensating uh, members uh, for the uh, excessive um, cash flow and as people catch up on their, their, their treatment and I mean just through our pricing. And the pricing, um, I expect the pricing this year uh, for health insurers will, you know, start with the two, notwithstanding the underlying inflation is probably more like, you know, three or four if, you, if you're able to strip out COVID-19 effect. I want to ask you about the health system, and, and again, as I said, we can talk about it all day. We'll try not to because we've got a limited time on the podcast. But uh, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, and Amazon got together to fix the US health system and end up giving up and disbanding the, the the joint venture. Now, the US system is obviously much more complex, arguably much more wasteful. I would argue, but you may disagree. Um, there's a lot going on there. But when 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 people with the clout, experience, frankly, cash of those three organisations whose job it was to literally put a business together to specifically solve the problem and then it's went, no, too hard. We, we, we can't do it. There's, you know, we can't find or, or, or achieve a solution. Um, you mentioned growing healthcare costs and it makes sense. We're, as you say, we're living longer. We're inventing better treatments. Therefore, those treatments simply are additional to things we could otherwise have done in the past. Um, we want to spend more on it, as you say, because we're getting older. Obviously, part of it is is what you've talked about through most of the last forty five minutes, which is that um, resolution of let's find a way to keep people out of hospital, keep them well, rather than dealing with their sicknesses. But as a system, uh, I, I mean, I, I haven't done the projections. I'm sure the government has somewhere in a generational report of one sort or another. Um, this gets more and more expensive. It chews up more and more of the government dollar, the the national dollar, uh, and it's not a bad thing. If we're spending more, staying alive longer, and those are quality years, then that's almost the definition of of improving quality of life and the things we should be measuring. But but how does how does that play out? What, what, do you have a concern about that? Are you sanguine about that? Um, how does how does the health system evolve over the next couple of decades? Well, there's one commentator who runs runs around talking about the jaws of death in health insurance. So the jaws of death being the inability of health insurers to keep pace with underlying claims, inflation, with premium growth. What's never happened, and we do price in claims inflation. Um, as we've just discussed, the real jaws of death in healthcare is on the public side. So, of the two hundred billion we spend as Australians, about one hundred and thirty billion of that is still funded by state and, and um, federal governments. About twenty five percent of our total taxation revenue. The jaws of death is that a, a growing dependency ratio of older retired Australians to younger tax paying Australians is exploding. 
Like when Gough Whitlam launched what was then Medibank back in 73, I think it was, there was something like 11 taxpaying working Australians for every one retired, read, sicker Australian. You know, Dave is a bit over five, but 2050 is a bit over three. You literally run out of sufficient taxpayers to support this burgeoning healthcare spending. That's the huge uh, policy challenge um, uh, before us now. I think inevitably, Medi if Medicare is, is to be made sustainable, it has to be reserved for those who would otherwise be left behind. Like, you know, I don't need 35 bucks to see a GP. You know, I can, somebody of my means, and, you know, maybe I'm at the top end, but somehow just a bit like pension superannuation, we need to design a system which encourages people to take greater responsibility for their lifetime healthcare cost, two-thirds of which occur in the last couple of years of life, so there's some lessons there as, as well. And, of course, we're a mechanism uh, for doing that. And while people like to malign the US um, healthcare system for all sorts of reasons, most of which very few understand, but anyway, um, you know, in the US, you know, they've accepted this and now, for example, people can now choose between traditional Medicare, just like our Medicare, or by a private sector alternative, just like they could today go from what was telecom to Vodafone or, 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 or Optus. And about 50% of Americans have elected that. And government, you know, the real story of Obamacare was his contribution to the Medicaid system, which is a, a social insurance system for people of lower socioeconomic means. We need to think more open-mindedly about the future of Medicare and how it may be redesign given the fiscal and societal realities of, of the future but of course anyone who dares brings up discussions about medicare and changing it is automatically accused of trying to destroy it which which is a nonsense i actually believe as much as anybody in a system of universal health care where nobody gets left behind it's a political uh, i don't think i was going to touch that one but i this is the challenge right those big those big existential issues that don't get addressed because no one wants to touch them until it's too late and then all of a sudden it's 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 panic stations and we're bailing out the boat because no one had the had the hard conversations but i don't know who has it you guys are accused of being self-interested of course being health insurers the, the, uh, either political party is going to be whacked by the other one by you know for even daring to question it and, and i don't know how we end up addressing those sort of big things but as you say, we addressed we addressed pensions with super. Arguably, we don't seem to have done anything about the potential future costs of health and health insurance or health payments. I should say, one way or the other, it becomes a, an ongoing challenge. Yeah, it's it's, it's a political it's a political hot potato. Uh, you know, Kevin Rudd had a go. I think it was in two thousand eleven with a major uh, reform um, initiative, um, and suggested a, a concept like what was known as Medicare Select, a bit like what what I was just describing, but, you know, they quickly pulled their heads in because they just feared the polls. Too hard, too hard. Mate, uh, speaking, of, speaking of politics, you come from a family where you have a, a politician in the family, a, a CEO in the family. Uh, tell me you're not going to be changing careers anytime soon. No no, uh, no leadership batting in the knapsack, as I think it was Paul Keating once famously said. No, no, no. I passed that opportunity. I was the one before Joel who got dragged along <laughs> to ALP meetings in Cessnock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> So, so does he blame you or do you blame him? Which way does it go? Oh, no, no. Well, I left home and Joel stayed and Joel's had a remarkable career, followed in my father's footsteps and he's a really impressive guy and has done um, very well. But he's bailing out. He is, he is. 
uh, and you're not going to take his place from the sound of it. No, nah, not unless I can be PM. <laughs> I'll take the job, but I want to be opposition leader. There's there's the offer right there. You, uh, if, if you're listening in Canberra, Michael, Michael, step up if you give him the leadership. Albo, it's your, up to you. Oh, well, no, but you're assuming I'd be a Labor. Oh, PM. that's a good point. I did assume that. Well, you mentioned you mentioned you were at ALP meetings, so I'm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm neither left or right these days, Scott. I believe in good and bad policy. Mate, I, you know what? You know the worst part. I am too, and I've, I've been pretty vocal on Twitter from time to time. You know, you're in the centre when both of both uh, fans of both parties accuse you of shilling for the other <laughs> bloke. I've been accused of being a Labor a Labor stooge and a Liberal shill in the last couple of months, and I think if I'm if that's the case, I'm probably doing something roughly right of <laughs> somewhere somewhere in the middle. Mate, we've run out of time. Thank you for being so generous. I have four last questions that I ask all of our guests. So if you'll indulge me just for another minute or two, we'll go through those. Um, I'm not sure if you're a, a big reader, or a big streamer. Uh, what, what do you do to occupy yourself? But is there anything in particular you're reading or watching at the moment you you share with our with our listeners? Well, I've been um, I've been watching Ted Lasso. Oh, I am still overdue. Is that great? Yeah, I was pretty. It's corny, but good. I've been told. Okay, I've been told it's fantastic. I just haven't got into it. I, I, it's on my list. Uh, look, I, I say the younger people in the business. Um, Christmas is coming up, so I'll read more novels. But yeah, I read The Economist every week, pretty much front to cover. I think it's a great source of um, knowledge and um, and and um, you know keeping keeping up the speed, but also you know some of the zeitgeist, some of the the, the new thinking. Um, I've been, you know, I've been getting in, in stuck into this whole um, ideology of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. You know, there's a risk that you try to please everyone, you please none. But I guess it just means uh, you've got to think, understand it, think through it, and then form a, a, a position. Yeah, you know, we're, we're forming a position as a company, uh, as as. We're about stakeholders, not just shareholders. But it's a slippery slope. You know, shareholders can misinterpret that. So, um, yeah, that, that's got me. And there's, there's, there's any amount of literature out there at the moment about that. Is there a particular author you have or a particular frame of reference? If people are thinking that stakeholder capitalism thing sounds interesting, is there a, a go-to person or, or book or...? No, it's mainly just um, uh, academic literature. No, I can't think of a particular book um, uh, I, I can point to. Um, but mate, over Christmas, I'll get out of the textbooks and <laughs> grab a novel. Nice, uh, but you need some good beach ready, mate. You can't take a textbook to the beach. Hey, um, uh, let's go. Let's go to trends. We talked a lot about trends. I know you're a future focused guy. You've talked about the metaverse and other things. Uh, maybe that's your answer. But what trends are you watching at the moment? They can be societal, health insurance, personally, just stuff kind of going on with with, with people around you. What, what trends have you got your eye on in, in society? Oh, look, the, the one I. I the one I've meant to describe, you know, this trend, this this combination of being able to well generate and connect so much data, and then use and then then have the machines make sense of that data, is completely going to revolutionise um, um, healthcare. Um, you know, that that's the trend that has me um, most fascinated. Of course, and the other trend, and you know, we've kind of become semi-famous for this is the uh, workplaces of the future. You know, the, the workplaces that we left pre-COVID-19, you know, people think, oh, well, hold on, they've been around forever. Well, they haven't. They've probably been around since the British East India Company of the late 19th century. They're, this idea of cramping people into offices five days a week is a relatively modern phenomenon. And, um, again, with technology at the heart of it rather than COVID-19, we will not go back. To those workplace uh, settings, you know, our policy is, is you can work wherever you want to work, subject to meeting safe health and safety 
um, and technological requirements and health and safety requirements being, you know, managing the risk of loneliness and isolation. And um, you still come to work, but you come to work and we're cre- we've created four hubs, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Auckland, um, Newcastle. You come to work for specific reasons like training, induction, team briefings, uh, celebrations, farewells, uh, et cetera. But the, the default position is for most will be home uh, and the workplaces that we create are only for, um, um, for specific uh, reasons. And, you know, I... I've got a theory that this is going to cause leaders to be more leaders. Like you think about the fundamentals of leadership, you know, setting a purpose for people, getting the right people in the bus, coaching them, setting goals for them, holding them account- accountable. Um, the idea that those things happened automatically because people showed up as an office five days a week, no, no, no not necessarily. So I've found already in this new distributed world that those fundamental tasks of manage, management, we need to be more deliberate uh, about. So, you know, I think it's, you know, I know people worry about Zoom fatigue um, and should do. You know, we need to put some boundaries and uh, rules around that. But just like my old example about my granddaughter, I think that my, my granddaughter will find it very strange that once upon a time I spent two hours in a car or train uh, or bus going into this big office in the city every day. You know, that'd be, that'd be weird, Grandpa. Yeah, that's a bit too. Mate, um, good one. what advice would you give someone who is interested in a job in your industry, whether it's health insurance, the healthcare sector, even anyone, you're, you're, you're a wide red and, and wide ranging kind of guy, um, someone who's 17, 18, 19, 20, maybe going into uni, coming out of uni, uh, do you have any particular in, uh, career advice you, you'd give people who are looking for a, a job in, in your industry or, or any other? Well, they've got to say, well, like in any career, they've got to be, um, yeah, they've got to want to have, a corporate career, that's not for everybody. You know, they may be happier in life as a, 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 a tradie uh, or a doctor, um, terrific. So they, they've got to be clear that they, you know, they, you know, they want a corporate uh, a career. They've got to be prepared to do the education. It's almost to the point, it seems to me, Scott, that, you know, an MBA, an MBA in my day was a ticket of the ride and it was, it was, it was an important part of my career development. And progress, but it's almost a day like it's table stakes. So you know, go out there, work, study hard, get the tertiary qualifications, and you know, enjoy what you do. <laughs> that sounds so cliche to say, but you know, make sure that you know you, you enjoy your work and you give yourself and your family uh, sufficient time to do other things in life which make you um, happy. Spend too much time in the office not to enjoy it. Yeah, well, you're a long time dead. And, you know, people talk about uh, uh, work-life balance. I, I think in this future world, it's probably less about balance and just more about um, integration. If you want to go for a surf for two hours at, at lunchtime, go have your surf for two hours at lunchtime. And if you worked 8 o'clock that night because the work's asynchronous, fine. It's just, it's, you know, it's just as long as you get in achieving what, what's, what's expected of, of you, how you go about doing that um, I think we're going to have much greater flexibility in the future. Mate, I'm an optimist and I think you probably are too. So my last question is my favourite question. What are you optimistic about, Mark? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll come out of um, uh, COVID-19 uh, in a better place, whether it be in our healthcare system, uh, whether it be in the way we um, go about uh, our work. 
optimistic the Knights will have a better season. <laughs> Newcastle Knights next season. I hope, hope. You lost Mitchell Pearce. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a shame, but you know, life goes on. And um, you know, the Auckland Blues do well, and the Richmond Tigers, you know, bounce. <laughs> Auckland Blues. Why the Auckland Blues? Oh, well, we're, it's a nod to the tower business, or are you? Well, uh, we're second largest health insurer in New Zealand, so you know, it's not surprising right, yeah. we have okay. major sponsorship properties like the like. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> a, a sponsor, a sponsor derived. Uh, you, you, you're a Knights fan, surely, though. At least without the sponsorship, aren't you? Or is it, or is it come with the, uh, has it come with the banner on the, on the logo on the? On the oh no, I'm a huge Knight. Well, my my son plays plays for the Newcastle Knights. So, skin in the game, skin in the game. I love it. Mark, you've been very generous with your time. I really, really appreciate it, mate. As I said, I do reckon you are the most underrated CEO on the ASX. I don't say that lightly. I've held that view for, for quite a few years. I'm only just uh, got smart enough recently to buy the shares finally. But, uh, mate, thank you very much for spending your time with us. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will appreciate it as well. Well, thanks, Scott, for your generous thoughts and uh, the opportunity to share some thoughts today. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.